Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Today, we're going to be talking all about self-pleasure. Nationally representative surveys in the United States and many other countries around the world find that masturbation is something that most people do, and this is true across genders, sexualities, and ages. While there are certainly some demographic groups that do it more often than others, it's a pretty pervasive sexual behavior. Despite this, however, we have a pretty fraught relationship with solo sex, and we have for quite a long time. Masturbation is something that many people view as unhealthy, immoral, or even addictive. So what do you really need to know about masturbation? That's what we're going to be discussing. We're going to explore the history and science of self-pleasure, bust some popular myths, and talk about how we can have a healthier relationship with masturbation. I am joined by Dr. Eric Sprankle, an associate professor of clinical psychology and the co-director of the Sexuality Studies Program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. He's also a licensed clinical psychologist and ASEC-certified sex therapist affiliated with the Minnesota Sexual Health Institute. He's currently finishing his first book titled DIY, The Wonderfully Weird History and Science of Masturbation. And I can't wait till it comes out so I can read it. This is going to be a fun and informative conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Studies show that as many as one in three men say they don't last as long in bed as they'd like to. Fortunately, there's a solution for this, and it's called Promescent. Promescent is a topical spray that boosts sexual stamina through temporary desensitization. Promescent is customizable for your body, and when used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and you'll see why thousands of physicians and sexual health providers recommend it. Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at permescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. That's Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. Hi, Eric, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I've been following you on social media for a long time, so it's a pleasure to finally speak with you. Likewise. So I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of sex therapy. So what drew you to this area and what do you love about being a sex therapist? Yeah, so I I think I can trace my origin story back to sophomore year in college at the University of Cincinnati. And I took a human sexuality course as a psych elective. And it was in this large 500 person, you know, lecture halls, one of the most popular classes um, at that university at the time. 
and going into it um, pretty arrogant like, you know, what else is there to know about sex? This should be an easy A, things like that. And then quickly learning that everything that I thought I knew about sex was either completely like a flat out piece of misinformation that I gathered, or at least some type of partial truth that was kind of wrapped into like centuries old myths. And so that piece I was just fascinated by of how much that we think we know about sex, but how much of of our knowledge is actually rooted in a lot of misinformation, a lot of pseudoscience. And it was really kind of from that point forward where I was really interested in making sexuality as part of my career within psychology. And what do you love most about being a sex therapist? Well, I haven't done clinical sex therapy work for a couple of years, but during that time, it was, it was just very fascinating. It was similar in the sense that, you know, you had patients coming in oftentimes with some type of self-diagnosis. So they were convinced that something was wrong with them and they knew what they were wrong, what was wrong with them. They had a particular label in mind. But then working with them, figuring out that, yeah, they don't really meet diagnostic criteria for anything. Maybe something unrelated to sexuality that's impacting their sexuality, something like an anxiety disorder or a mood disorder, or there's relationship conflicts, or there's just a lot of sexual guilt and shame that then they are labeling themselves as like a a sex addict or a porn addict, more so because of that guilt and shame, more so than any type of behavioral metric that we assessed for. So that was the interesting piece of kind of going along with patients in their journey of kind of reducing sexual shame, sexual guilt, having a better insight into their own sexuality, their functioning, their behaviors, their desires, attractions, and just kind of leading them into greater sexual health. Yeah, I can relate to so much of what you said there and in your first answer, you know, the part about not realizing how little you know about sex till you start immersing yourself in this field. It was the same experience for me. Very humbling because there were lots of things I thought I knew, but nope, turns out I was wrong about all of them. I think that feeds into what you described as your experience as a sex therapist, which is that so many other people are in the same boat and they don't know much about sex. And when you have that lack of information, it's very easy to think that there's something wrong when there isn't actually anything wrong. And I think that's really why sex education is such a vital part of sex therapy. And so many sex problems can be fixed just by giving people the sex education that they never got. So let's talk about masturbation. You're working on a book about the history and science of masturbation. So let's start with the history portion. Now, as long as we've been systematically, scientifically studying sex, which actually hasn't been that long, it's only been about a century now, we know that masturbation has been a popular activity. And I think a lot of people would probably assume that if you could go back further in time and study this, you'd find that as long as people had hands and genitals, they've probably been touching themselves. But there was this book called Solitary Sex that came out about two decades ago now, which argued that masturbation as we know it today wasn't really invented until the year 1712. And prior to the 1700s, masturbation just wasn't a subject of great interest or discussion. And so while it may have existed, we just didn't know that much about it. So I'm curious for your take on this. How long has masturbation been a part of human sexual expression to your knowledge? It can be traced, at least theoretically, back to the dawn of Homo sapiens. And I think that's one thing that separates us as a species from other species. There's plenty of other species that masturbate 
our focus, however, is to the point of orgasm. It is very goal-directed, where a lot of other species will stimulate their genitals, but it doesn't necessarily lead to orgasm. And what is kind of hypothesized about what is unique about our species of being very goal-oriented for the purpose of orgasm is because of our brains and our ability for abstract thought and that we can fantasize. And it's those fantasies that we can create a sexual world when there isn't one in reality around us, whereas other species have to rely on sexual stimulation that's in their immediate environment in which there may not be any. And so we have this ability, and this dates back way back into the dawn of being Homo sapiens, that we can hold on to sexual fantasies and create sexual worlds in any environment. And that can lead to great solo sex because then we have the longer duration of being in this erotic world that we've created. And that's more likely to produce and lead to orgasm. That was the goal. So there's very little doubt that masturbation hasn't been a part of the entire human story. That book that you referenced in kind of like this turning point in the early 1700s is where masturbation became something else. That was really a turning point more so that masturbation was starting to be viewed as harmful to one's physical and psychological health. And then that started this whole kind of health reform movement, the 1700s, 1800s, and even a little bit early into the, the early 1900s as well, that, or masturbation in particular, but also like sex in general can have all these negative uh, health impacts on you. And so all these different types of kind of snake oil kind of cures then to avoid masturbating, uh, to decrease the desire of masturbating. And then it's just a laundry list of all the uh, potential ailments that masturbation can cause. And here's all the various ridiculous cures uh, to kind of keep you away from this self-pollution, as it was called. Self-pollution. It's a slightly different terminology than self-pleasure, which you right. know, we often hear <laughs> today. And I appreciate you sharing all of that. In my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality, I review a bit about the history of masturbation. And it is really fascinating. And that period in the 17 and 1800s was really important because you had this broader medicalization of sex, which, as you said, sort of shifted the lens on masturbation from simply being viewed as an immoral or sinful activity to something that actually is a sign of disease or pathology. And you had physicians who would say that semen, for example, is an essential oil and that if you ejaculate for purposes other than procreation, you're basically depriving your body of its life force and that's going to create all of these other health problems. You know, there were even some health manuals that said that one ounce of semen is equivalent to like this many pints of blood and so if you have a stray ejaculation, you know, you're really doing harm to your body. Yeah, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, all that still persists today in various circles. I see that a lot. And that, that was actually the origin of this book idea was I, I posted something on social media that I thought was pretty, um, you know, not controversial of just saying something along the lines of masturbation is healthy. Uh, have like a worry-free orgasm today or something along those lines. And some of the comments I was getting accusing me of being very irresponsible for making that suggestion. And don't I know about all the harmful effects of ejaculation that you're losing all these vital nutrients like zinc and your testosterone drops and you develop low self-esteem and social anxiety. And I'm like, where the hell are all these things coming from? And it's not just coming out of, you know, Reddit. Um, 
you know, people's different subreddits that they're on getting all this misinformation. It's certainly on there. And that may be someone's introduction to all these myths, especially about semen retention. But these are the same myths that have existed for the past 200 years. It's just regurgitated. I haven't heard the one about <laughs> masturbation depriving your body of zinc. So I guess what's the implication there? You need to take a daily multivitamin if you're a chronic masturbator. I don't know. Yeah, that's the thing. Like if, if they are actually worried, like there is zinc in seminal fluid, it comes from the prostate gland. So technically there is zinc leaving your body during ejaculation, but your body isn't dependent on that zinc from your prostate fluid to nourish your body in, in any way. And it really just, uh, the, the amount of zinc in an average ejaculation is really equivalent to eating like six cashews. So if you're really that concerned, then you know, eat six cashews afterwards or eat your semen like a multivitamin. Like if you want to regain those nutrients back or something like get creative, but they never go to those kind of problem solving stages. It's always just like, this is bad. So therefore I have to abstain from it. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, so the advice is bust a nut and then eat a couple nuts. But anyway, um, <laughs> makes no nut November very ironic. <laughs> yes. So masturbation has long been viewed as unhealthy. And as you mentioned, there have been many cures for masturbation promoted by the religious and medical communities over the years. Some of them very inventive, some of them very disturbing. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the ways that people tried to discourage masturbation in the past? Sure. A lot of them come down to just like, um, you know, competing behaviors things that you can't do two things at once. Uh, so you can't masturbate and you can't hold uh, the, the Book of Mormon in both hands while you sleep, which was a, a Mormon recommendation to avoid masturbating at night. Um, Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the founding fathers, he signed the Declaration of Independence. He was a big name in, in medicine, especially in psychiatry early on in the late 1700s and early 1800s. He recommended long horseback uh, journeys. Uh, he recommended studying mathematics. He studied, He recommended never looking a woman in the, directly in the face. Um, and he also recommended going to war. So that's an alternative to masturbating is, is to wage war. Um, so other, other things too are the, the common things that you may even hear now, like old wives' tales of like taking a cold bath, uh, changing diet. Some of those things are really common now in some of these wellness spaces uh, that are really kind of fixated on the vital nutrients within semen. Uh, so cold showers or baths, switching to like a vegetarian diet, avoiding like spicy foods. That was the whole thing back with like, you know, John Kellogg and Sylvester Graham and the invention of like, Kellogg's cornflakes and uh, graham crackers was a, a diet that is very bland will help diminish sexual desire um, and therefore the person will be less likely uh, to masturbate. Fortunately, no, none of those things are actually effective. So feel free to have a bowl of uh, cornflakes while masturbating. I'm sure Dr. Kellogg would appreciate that. <laughs> yes. So there have been all kinds of things that have been pushed or promoted. And some of them in the medical community went further than that. And, you know, for example, some people would recommend, you know, wearing the chastity belts or the, I think they were called spermatorrhea rings, which were kind of like cock rings that had spikes on the inside. So if you've got an erection that it was going to then create something that's very painful. And then, you know, I've also seen a bunch of patents for various anti-masturbatory inventions that have been proposed. I think my personal favorite is 
there was this device, it was kind of like a cockering sort of thing, but it was attached to a bell. And so if you got an erection, then it was going to start like ringing this bell. So everybody knows like you've got one. I think the point is kind of like humiliation, but we know humiliation can be a kink. So I don't know if that would have necessarily had the intended or desired purpose. But yeah, people did all kinds of things to try and prevent masturbation because they thought that it was unhealthy. Now, our view of masturbation today is quite different. Well, for many of us, it is, you know, at least in the sex education research therapy community, we recognize that it can actually be linked to a number of health benefits. And for example, if you look at what are the reasons why people say that they masturbate, these benefits become very clear. Many people say that it provides stress relief or it helps them to fall asleep or they've discovered new sources of pleasure and better understand their body and what feels good. So it can do all of these positive things for us, but people still have a lot of hangups about it. And one of the most common ones is this idea that you're doing it too much or that you're addicted to masturbation. And I know that you've studied this idea of masturbation addiction. So what can you tell us about it? Can you really become addicted to masturbation? You can really believe you're addicted to masturbation. I think that's the better way to, to phrase it. Objectively, not the greatest evidence to support that there is this kind of behavioral cluster or syndrome that we would label as masturbation addiction from like a clinical perspective, a diagnosis that doesn't have much support. However, what is coming up clinically as well as more recently in the, in the research is that people's belief that they are a masturbation addict or oftentimes it goes hand in hand with being a porn addict, right? These are all self-described labels that people come into mental health clinics and saying that they need treatment for. And it's not that, you know, if I, I've had plenty of patients myself uh, come into the office with this very uh, belief that they that they think they are masturbating too much, that they're a masturbation addict and they, and they need help. And the approach to dealing with that clinically is not to say, oh, that's not a real thing, goodbye, right? So clearly there's distress there. Clearly they're suffering in some way. But it's less about how much they're actually masturbating and more so that there is this conflict between their sexual and specifically their masturbation attitudes and their masturbatory behavior. And it's an incongruence of that. Joshua Grubbs, a uh, researcher at Bowling Green State University, has talked about this a lot and has published a lot in this area of moral incongruence. And these are largely kind of um, what we're seeing as the, the best predictors of whether or not somebody is self-labeling as some type of sex, masturbation, porn addict in some way, that their values go against them masturbating. So even if they just masturbate once a month, that could be enough for them to think that they are out of control because they don't want to masturbate at all. And the fact that they masturbated even just once goes against their values and they feel like they didn't have control. They couldn't resist the urges. And so all this kind of language, that's kind of addictive kind of language of, of you know, feeling out of control, a failure to resist urges, trying to stop, but you can't, those kinds of things. So this is the distress that patients are coming into clinics with. And it has, again, very little to do with actually how much or how frequent they're masturbating and more so how their masturbation lines up, or in this case, does not align with their sexual values. 
what you said reminds me of some of the research I've seen on self-described porn addicts, where you look at the frequency with which they view porn. And for example, in one of the studies I'm thinking of, the average amount of porn consumed was about 15 minutes per week, I believe. And they're labeling that as an addiction. But if you think about the average amount of television that the American watches per day, you know, that's like two to three hours or something like that. But we don't consider television watching to be an addiction, even though we're doing it way more. So it really is this perception issue where it often is tied in with that moral incongruence where you think that there's something wrong with the behavior, or maybe you've been shamed by a partner or somebody else for saying you're doing it too much because maybe they masturbate at a lower frequency or they don't do it at all. So yeah, it's <laughs> one of these things where I think a lot of people are really concerned about it, but there are people who do it way more than them who don't feel like they have a problem, which says that it's not about the objective frequency with which people are doing it. It's how they're labeling and interpreting their own behavior. Right, exactly. Yeah, and there's other pathways too for people to have problems with their, their masturbation frequency. It can be, you know, a, a, a coping strategy in which there is nothing inherently wrong with that. You, you'll see some clinicians say that there, that is inherently wrong of using masturbation as a coping mechanism. That's, that's evidence that there is something wrong. You shouldn't be using masturbation to cope with stress. And I'm like, well, why not? We use a lot of other types of behaviors to cope with stress. Why can't we use sex and masturbation? So I think that's a moral judgment on the part of some clinicians. But in cases like that, where it's being used for like mood regulation, then oftentimes this is what I was seeing clinically is that, you know, there's an underlying mood disorder, there's an underlying anxiety disorder, and maybe they just don't have as many, you know, coping mechanisms in their toolbox, so to speak. And so they're a little bit more reliant on masturbation to kind of self-soothe. And that's becoming a little concerning for them. Again, not that it's reached this like objective number that's considered too much. It's just from their personal perspective, it is too much. And it's not, you know, treating the underlying distress in which it's not designed to treat an anxiety disorder. It can be a momentary feeling of relaxation or, and calm and ease and contentment, but that's not going to treat like PTSD or panic disorder or something like that. Um, so that's the other area where I see that people think that they have a masturbation addiction is if it's being used for kind of mood regulation and not having the desired impact of like actually eradicating the mood disorder or anxiety disorder. Uh, that's where people, again, it's just their perception can start feeling like they're a little out of control with it, even though objectively they're not. So this goes back to it may be the symptom rather than the cause of the problem. And you're so right that when it comes to sex and masturbation, there are many people in the therapeutic community who try to discourage that as a mechanism of self-care or stress relief, but they don't apply that same critical lens to other forms of self-care. And there are other ways that we can try to get that relaxation or stress relief that can cause health problems if we were to do them to an extreme amount. You know, for example, if you're somebody who always goes for a really intense run or workout or something like that, every time you're super stressed, you can develop repetitive motion injuries and other things like that. And so I think, you know, we apply this very critical lens to sex and masturbation, but we don't apply that to other things, which says, you know, there is something a bit moralistic that's going on there. Yeah, definitely some double standards too. And I, I think that a challenge that you don't see talk too much about either in both the clinical world and the research world on this topic of like masturbation addiction is that it's trying to come up with like a single 
diagnostic label to kind of describe all these, you know, patient experiences. Where even when I was doing clinical work 10 years ago, my patients who at least would come through the door saying that they were a sex addict, uh, we were operating under the umbrella of calling it all like compulsive sexual behavior at the clinic I was at at that time. Um, I was seeing that they're not a homogenous group. You would have some that was more in kind of like the, the moral incongruence camp. You would have the, the other guys who were more dysregulated because of an anxiety or uh, um, uh, mood disorder. You'd have some that it's in, it kind of played out more like an impulse control disorder that they had ADHD and this was kind of a symptom related to that. Uh, other guys, they were just simply narcissists and they felt like they could do whatever they want and like the problems that they were getting themselves into were more relational than anything because they were violating boundaries within their monogamous marriages or something like that. So I think a problem could be trying to capture all these ways that masturbation could be a problem for an individual under one single label, where it could actually be like a dozen different labels or just symptoms of labels that we already have. I think that's a really important point. Now, another popular idea about masturbation is that if you abstain from it or if you engage in semen retention, you know, is another way that people sometimes talk about this, that it will boost testosterone. So the implication is sort of that avoiding masturbation can give you more energy, make you more virile. And that's part of the reason why the whole No Nut November thing popped up where people challenge themselves not to masturbate. So what can you tell us about that? Is there any evidence that avoidance of masturbation has these benefits that are often claimed? Nothing conclusively, especially with testosterone. And that's the big focus, especially right now. Um, and interestingly, too, this, the concerns about testosterone currently are nothing new. Even though like 200 years ago, they weren't focused on testosterone per se, um, the focus on masturbation abstinence was still rooted in beliefs surrounding what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine, those things. And this is what's playing out now too, of like masturbation is viewed as hurting your masculinity in some way. And so what we see in the, the evidence of like what has actually been studied relating to masturbation and testosterone is that there's nothing conclusive. The semen retention proponents love to, to point to one or two studies that there are small sample sizes. One had like 20 some participants, the other one had 10. And they showed after like a week, one study, the popular one that's always nicely cited, that after seven days, testosterone levels were higher um, after abstaining than it was uh, at the beginning. No control group or anything. So there could be other factors that could explain that bump, but then it kind of leveled off after seven days. And so there really wasn't that much of a difference after that, that point. What's interesting to note too, despite the limitations of trying to make conclusions off of one small study, um, is also this wasn't unique to masturbation abstinence, right? This has to be abstaining from all types of sexual behavior, primarily abstaining from ejaculation. And that's something that is completely overlooked for the most part within semen retention kind of advocacy, if you can call it that, is that this, this narrow focus on masturbation, even though everything that they're describing is just about orgasm and ejaculation, regardless of the mechanism to get to orgasm and ejaculation. So it doesn't matter if you're having partnered sex or, or masturbating, having the ejaculation is going to have these effects on you one way or the other. It doesn't matter. Your body doesn't care if you're ejaculating into a shower drain or um, into or onto a partner. That doesn't matter. 
Uh, but they get focused on masturbation, like that's the evil. So that kind of kind of shows their double standards and, and what they value as like real sex. But then you look at other studies, right? So that showed a, you know, a plateauing of an increase um, after seven days of abstinence. But then you see other studies, the correlational that show that, you know, higher testosterone levels are associated with higher levels of, of masturbation frequency. Um, one study was, was very interesting, uh, found that testosterone rates were higher after watching people have sex in a swingers club. And so if we're actually concerned about ways to increase testosterone, I have yet to see a semen retention proponent uh, advocate for going to swingers clubs and being a voyeur um, in, in those environments. And so again, so it, it's kind of clear that there's a lot of kind of sexual shame, sexual judgment, sexual conservatism that's kind of behind spouting some of these uh, so-called benefits of not ejaculating, but the de evidence doesn't support it. So interesting. Now, we've talked a bit about some of the concerns that men will often report when it comes to masturbation, like how abstinence of it, them thinking that it might boost their testosterone and so forth. I have heard concerns from some women about masturbation, but they tend to be a little bit different. And I think the most common one that I get asked about is whether a woman can become addicted to her vibrator and whether that's going to ruin partnered sex for her. So, you know, as a sex educator, therapist, what, what is your advice to people who might be concerned about vibrator addiction? Yeah, neurologically, you're fine. Nothing's getting desensitized, right? Uh, what happens with any kind of masturbation is that, you know, we know our bodies better than anybody. We figure out what works the best, right? So whether or not we're using a, a vibrator or just our, our hands or our fingers, we're figuring out the best way to touch our bodies, specifically our genitals, that produces the greatest amount of pleasure that's the most consistent way to achieve orgasm because more likely that's the, the goal of, of masturbating. Um, and oftentimes in the most efficient and, and fastest way too. And the way that we do that doesn't necessarily always, you know, find a parallel with, with partnered sex. That doesn't mean that you've ruined yourself for partner sex or, or, or that your body can no longer respond favorably to partnered sex. When this happened clinically, and I would have a couple coming in working on this issue, it is really just about, okay, what are you doing alone? What are you doing with a partner? Look at these gaps here, these differences. Now, how can we bridge these gaps to get a little bit closer? If you want to experience someone of the same type of pleasure that you experience alone, but with a partner, what has to change with partnered sex? And that's it. It's just introducing what you found works so well by yourself with a partner, if that's what's desired. And knowing too that there's separate behaviors, right? There's individual motivations to masturbate versus motivations to uh, have partnered sex. And so it doesn't have to mirror, uh, partnered sex doesn't have to mirror masturbation 100%, 100% of the time. It's its own thing. But if we want to have a little bit more of a same res response, if that's valued by somebody, and there are ways to kind of bridge those gaps. And it is finding out, well, how can we mimic these things that are working so well for myself individually with a partner? What do they need to do differently? Or what do I need to do differently? Different roles, different positions, even incorporating sex toys within partnered sex. All these different things can help get that person to experience the same level of pleasure and intensity as they do alone now with a partner. It's interesting as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about how I hear a lot of sex therapists 
who give advice to men when they have difficulty orgasming with a partner to change up their masturbation routine to more closely resemble the stimulation that they might get during sex. And at the same time, a lot of these same-sex therapists, their advice to women is to take their masturbatory practices and incorporate them more into sex so that sex more closely mimics masturbation. So we kind of give different gendered advice there in some ways, but I think either way could work. You know, it's it's trying to either take the sensations you get during sex and incorporate that more into masturbation or take more of the sensations from masturbation and incorporate that into sex. So I don't know that there's necessarily one right or best way for everyone, but it's it's all about trying to get that optimal match between what really works for you and your body in the particular context in which you want to experience pleasure. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and just specifically looking at the use of vibrators and the concerns that they're desensitizing uh, your clitoris, right? You know, I'm working on a chapter right now and I came across this urologist, a current urologist out in California, and he has a blog post relating to like masturbation addiction. Even though he doesn't treat it, he primarily focuses on penis and testicle enlargement surgeries. Um, so for cosmetic reasons. Um, but in it, he said that women should be cautious using vibrators because it could desensitize, quote, precious female parts. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, if you're a urologist, you can't even say the word clitoris, let alone kind of perpetuating these myths about clitoral desensitization from uh, vibrator use. Maybe their patients should seek counsel from other places. <laughs> Possibly so. So masturbation and porn often go hand in hand, so to speak. And both of these things can become the sources of personal shame and guilt and anxiety. They can also sometimes become conflict areas within romantic relationships where, say, one partner interprets their partner's masturbation as a sign that they're not sexually satisfied or something that they shouldn't need to do if they're in a relationship. So what's your advice to people on how they can have a healthier relationship with porn and masturbation so that we're not getting all of this shame and anxiety and conflict? Yeah, so the big variable there is um, whether or not the person is in a relationship. So that so many times in my clinical work um, that person was a self-described porn addict or they were labeled by their partner as such. And it, again, has nothing to do with the amount of porn that they're watching, the content, anything like that. Um, it just has to do with this values difference. Um, a lot of times it was just within the individual. They didn't like what they were watching or how often they were watching, but oftentimes they had no problem with it themselves, but their partner did, right? And oftentimes, too, much like a lot of different types of, you know, if we're calling, we can at least call this some type of betrayal. A lot of times it was, uh, you know, labeled as infidelity, uh, at least in the moment after it was discovered, you know, finding, you know, your partner's uh, browser history and, and realizing what they were doing up at night um, for so long. Um, in those instances, right, again, it, it's less about, the actual websites that was visited, but more so that there's a secret in this relationship. And it's the secret that it was actually damaging. Of course, there were some couples in which there was just a complete values difference of saying, no, you shouldn't be looking at porn at all. And here are the reasons why. You can't argue with that. That's their value system. Um, if their partner disagrees with that, then that's a couple's mismatch issue. And can that be resolved through couples counseling or are they better to kind of uh, go their separate ways? 
But oftentimes the conflict was just about the secrecy. And so that would be always a big work within therapy and always a big piece of advice, like preventatively, is don't have aspects of your sexuality to be secret, especially if you're in a relationship with somebody. Privacy is fine. And the difference between privacy and secrecy in this context is that with privacy relating to porn and masturbation, that your partner knows that you watch porn, they know that you masturbate whenever, um, but you don't have to tell them, you don't have to make an announcement every time that you're going to go log on the computer and, and masturbate, right? You don't have to keep a log and, and share it with your partner as like a weekly summary of like, okay, these were my activities this week, right? Uh, that doesn't, that type of transparency isn't necessary. But the fact that everyone knows that, and there's no surprise that your partner, partner masturbates and they watch porn, that's not a big deal. That's privacy. Secrecy is when your partner is completely in the dark that you're doing that. And then that becomes a betrayal once that is either disclosed or more often when that is discovered. And that's really the kind of the therapeutic issue is how do we repair that betrayal, rebuild the trust, and develop a little bit more transparency around especially solo sexuality in this committed relationship. And I think that goes back to the importance of early on in a relationship Discussing your sexual boundaries and getting on the same page about your sexual values. So many people just never have that discussion at all. And what they end up doing is just making assumptions about what is and is not okay within the context of this relationship and how my partner is likely to feel about these different sorts of things. And so it can lead to these unintentional trust and boundary violations when you just never have any discussions about sex. So that's the importance of normalizing sexual discussions very early on. In a relationship, making sure you're on the same page, because sometimes you might be with somebody who just has a totally different value set and it's just not a good match. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was a big thing with couples therapy too, that I would say at the, at the onset of therapy, and this is different uh, for some schools of thought where the focus is maintain the relationship at all costs. That's your role as like a couples counselor. I never approached it that way. And I was very transparent with my patients saying like, my goal is to get you individually healthy and you individually healthy. And if you grow healthy together as a couple, great. If not, if you grow healthy apart, that can be sad to lose the relationship, but you're still healthier, right? Uh, so there's no kind of preset agenda, of like save the relationship at all costs. It's just like, how can we make this work, even if that means breaking up? I appreciate you sharing all of that. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Eric. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, primarily right now, um, prior to the book getting released, I'm just on social media. So Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Sprankle. And I also have a website. I don't know what's on there anymore. It's like drsprankle.com. I'm sure that'll be used a little bit more once um, I'm finished with the book and starting to, to push that out there into the world. Well, we can't wait till the book comes out. It's called DIY, The Wonderfully Weird History and Science of Masturbation. So thank you again for your time and thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 